Chapter One of The Tiger of Mysore by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. The Tiger of Mysore by G. A. Henty. Chapter One A Lost Father. There's no sayin', lad, no, no sayin' at all. All I know is that your father, the captain, was washed ashore at the same time I was. As you heard me say, I owed my life to him. I was pretty nigh gone when I caught sight of him, holding on to a spar. Spent as I was, I managed to give a shout loud enough to catch his ear. He looked round, I, I waved my hand, and shouted, "Goodbye, Captain!" And I sank lower and lower, and I, I felt that it was all over, when, half in a dream, I heard your father's voice shout, "'Hold on, Ben!' I gave one more struggle, and then I felt him catch me by the arm. I, I don't remember what happened until I found myself lashed to the spar beside him. "'That is right, Ben,' he said cheerily, as I held up my head. "'You'll do now. I had a sharp tussle to get you here, but it's all right now. We're setting in shore fast. Pull yourself together, for we shall have a rough time of it in the surf. Anyway, we'll stick together, come what may.' Well, as the wives lifted us up, I saw the coast, with its groves of coconuts almost down to the water's edge, and white sheets of surf running up high on the sandy beach. It was not more than a hundred yards away, and the captain sang out, Hurray! There are some natives coming down. They'll give us a hand. Next time we came up on a wave, he said, When we get close, Ben, we must cut ourselves adrift from this spar. It'll crush the life out of us. But, but before we do that, I'll tie the two of us together. He cut a bit of rope from the rifle hanging from the spar, and tied one end round my waist and the other round his own, leaving about five fathom loose between us. There, he shouted in my ear, if either of us gets chucked well up and the natives get a hold of him, the other must come up too. Now mind, Ben, keep broadside on to the wave if you can, and then let it roll you up as far as it'll take you. Then, when you feel that its force is spent, stick your fingers and toes in the sand and hold on like grim death. Well, we drifted nearer and nearer, until, just as we got to the point where the great waves tumbled over, Captain cut the lashings and swam a little way, so as to be clear of the spar. Then a big wave came towering up, and I was carried along like a straw in a whirlpool. Then there was a crash that pretty nigh knocked the senses out of me. I, I, I do not know what happened afterwards. It was a, a real confusion of white water rushing past and over me. Then for a moment I stopped, and at once made a clutch of the ground that I had been rolling over. There was a big strain, and I was hauled backwards as if a team of wild horses were pulling at me. Then there was a jerk, and I, I knew nothing more till I woke up and found myself on the sands out of reach of the surf. Your father did not come to for half an hour. He'd been hurt a bit worse than I had, but at last he came round. Well, we were kept three months in a sort of castle place, and then one day a party of chaps with guns and swords came into the yard where we were sitting. The man, who seemed ahead of the fellows who'd been keeping us prisoners, walked up with one who was evidently an officer over the chaps as had just arrived. He looked at us both and laid his hands on the captain. Then the others came up. The captain had just time to say, uh, We're going to be parted, Ben. God bless you. If ever you get back, give my love to my wife, and tell her what's happened to me, and that she must keep up her heart, for I shall make a bolt of it the first time I get a chance.' Well, the next day I was taken off to, to a place they call Calicut. There I stopped a year, and then the Rajah of the place joined the English against Tippoo. He was lord of all the country, and, and I was released. I, I, I had got by that time to talk their lingo pretty well, though I'd forgotten it all now. And I'd found out that the chaps who'd taken your father away were a party sent down by Tippoo. 
who, having heard that two Englishmen had been cast on shore, had insisted upon one of them being handed over to him. Well, it, it, it's known that a great many of the prisoners in Tippoo's hands have been murdered in their dungeons. He has sworn over and over again that he has no European prisoners, but everyone knows that he has numbers of them in his hands. Whether the captain is one of those who have been murdered, or whether he's still in one of Tippoo's dungeons, is more than I or anyone else can say. Well, as I've told you, Ben, that is what we mean to find out. Well, I know that's what your mother's often said, lad, but it seems to me that you have more chance of finding the man in the moon than you have of learning whether your father's alive or not. Well, we are going to try anyway, Ben. I know it's a difficult job, but Mother and I have talked it over ever since you came home with the news three years ago. So I have made up my mind, and nothing can change me. You see, I have more chances than most people would have. Being a boy is all in my favor, and then, you know, I talk the language just as well as English. Yes, of course, that is a pull and a big one, but it, it's a desperate undertaking, lad, and I can't say as I see how it is to be done. Well, I don't see either, Ben, and I don't expect to see until we get out there, but desperate or not, Mother and I are going to try. Dick Holland, the speaker, was a lad of some fifteen years of age. His father, who was captain of a fine East Indiaman, had sailed from London when he was nine, and had never returned. No news had been received of the ship after she touched at the Cape, and it was supposed that she had gone down with all hands, until, nearly three years later, her boatswain, Ben Burkett, had entered the East India Company's office and reported that he himself and the captain had been cast ashore on the territories of the Rajah of Coorg, the sole survivors, as far as he knew, of the Hooghly. After an interview with the directors, he had gone straight to the house at Chadwell, inhabited by Mrs. Holland. She had left there, but had removed to a smaller one a short distance away, where she lived upon the interest of the sum that her husband had invested from his savings, and from a small pension granted to her by the company. Mrs. Holland was a half-caste, the daughter of an Englishwoman who had married a young Rajah. Her mother's life had been a happy one, but when her daughter had reached the age of sixteen she died, obtaining on her deathbed the Rajah's consent that the girl should be sent to England to be educated, while her son, who was three years younger, should remain with his father. Over him she had exercised but little influence. He had been brought up like the sons of other native princes, and, save for his somewhat light complexion, the English blood in his veins would never have been suspected. Margaret, on the other hand, had been under her mother's care, and, as the latter had always hoped that the girl would, at any rate for a time, go to her family in England, she had always conversed with her in that language, and had, until her decreasing strength rendered it no longer possible, given her an English education. In complexion and appearance she took far more after her English mother than the boy had done, and save for her soft, dark eyes and glossy jet-black hair, might have passed as a pure English blood. When she sailed it was with the intention of returning to India in the course of a few years, but this arrangement was overthrown by the fact that on the voyage John Holland, the handsome young first mate of the Indiaman, completely won her heart, and they were married a fortnight after the vessel came up the Thames. The matter would not have been so hurried had not a letter she posted on landing to her mother's sister, who had promised her a home, received an answer written in a strain which determined her to yield at once to John Holland's pressing entreaties that they should be married without delay. Her aunt had replied that she had consented to overlook the conduct of her mother in uniting herself to a native, and to receive her for a year at the rectory, but that her behaviour in so precipitately engaging herself to a rough sailor rendered it impossible to countenance her. 
as she stated that she had come over with a sum sufficient to pay her expenses while in England, she advised her to ask the captain, who, by the way, must have grossly neglected his duties by allowing an intimacy between her and his mate, to place her in some school, where she would be well looked after until her return to India. The Indian blood in Margaret's veins boiled fiercely, and she wrote her aunt a letter which caused that lady to congratulate herself on the good fortune that had prevented her from having to receive under her roof a girl so objectionable and violent a character. Although the language that John Holland used concerning this letter was strong indeed, he was well satisfied, as he had foreseen that it was not probable Margaret's friends would have allowed her to marry him, without communicating with her father, and that the Rajah might have projects of his own for her disposal. He laid the case before the captain who placed her in charge of his wife until the marriage took place. Except for the long absences of her husband, Margaret's life had been a very happy one, and she was looking forward to the time when, after another voyage, he would be able to give up his profession and settle down upon his savings. When months passed by, and no news came of the Hooghly having reached port, Mrs. Holland at once gave up her house and moved into a smaller one, for, although her income would have been sufficient to enable her to remain where she was, she determined to save every penny she was able for the sake of her boy. She was possessed of strong common sense and firmness of character, and when Ben Burkett returned with his tale, he was surprised at the composure with which she received it. "'I have always,' she said, "'had a conviction that John was still alive, and have not allowed Dick to think of his father as dead. And now I believe as firmly as before that some day John will be restored to me. I myself can do nothing towards aiding him. A woman can do little here. She can do nothing in India save among her own people. I shall wait patiently for a time. It may be that this war will result in his release, but in the meantime, I shall continue to prepare Dick to take up the search for him as soon as he is old enough. I hear once a year from my brother, who is now Rajah, and he will be able to aid my boy in many ways. However, for a time I must be patient and wait. I have learnt to wait during my husband's long absences, and besides, I think that the women of India are a patient race. I trust that John will yet come home to me, but if not, when it's time, we will try to rescue him. Ben said nothing at the time to dampen her courage, but he shook his head as he left the cottage. Poor creature, he said. I would not say anything to discourage her, but for a woman and boy to try to get a captive out of the claws of the tiger of Mysore, it's, it's just madness. Each time he returned from a voyage, Ben called upon Mrs. Holland. He himself had given up every vestige of hope when it was known that the name of her husband was not among the list of those whom Tipu had been forced to release. Margaret Holland, however, still clung to hope. Her face was paler, and there was a set, pathetic expression in it, so when she spoke of her husband as being still alive, Ben would sooner have cut out his tongue than allow the slightest word indicative of his own feeling of certainty as to the captain's fate to escape him, and he always made a pretense of entering warmly into her plans. The training, as she considered it, of her son went on steadily. She always conversed with him in her father's language, and he was able to speak it as well as English. She was ever impressing upon him that he must be strong and active. When he was twelve she engaged an old soldier who had set up a sort of academy to instruct him in the use of the sword, and in such exercises as were calculated to strengthen his muscles and to give him strength and agility. Unlike most mothers, she had no word of reproach when he returned home from school with a puffed face or cut lips, the signs of battle. I do not want you to be quarrelsome, she often said to him, but I have heard your father say 
that a man who can use his fists well is sure to be cool and quick in any emergency. You know what is before you, and these qualities are of far more importance in your case than any book-learning. Therefore, Dick, I say, never quarrel on your own account, but whenever you see a boy bullying a smaller one, take the opportunity of giving him a lesson, while learning one yourself. In the days of old, you know, the first duty of a true knight was to succor the oppressed, and I want you to be a true knight. You'll get thrashed sometimes, no doubt, but don't mind that. Perhaps next time you'll turn the tables. Dick acted upon this advice, and by the time he was fifteen had established a reputation among not only the boys of his own school, but of the district. In addition to his strength and quickness, he had a fund of dogged endurance and imperturbable good temper that did not fail him. Even on the rare occasions when, in combats with boys much older than himself, he was forced to admit himself defeated. The fact that he fought, not because he was angry, but as if it were a matter of business, gave him a great advantage, and his readiness to take up the cause of any boy ill-treated by another was so notorious that, I will tell Dick Holland became a threat that saved many a boy from being burned. Ten days before his conversation with Ben, his mother had said, Dick, I can stand this no longer. I have tried to be patient for six years, but I can be patient no longer. I feel that another year of suspense would kill me. Therefore I have made up my mind to sail at once. The voyage will take us five months, and perhaps you may have to remain some little time at my brother's before you can start. Now that the time has come, I think that perhaps I am about to do wrong, and that it may cost you your life, but I cannot help it, Dick. I dream of your father almost every night, and I wake up thinking that I hear him calling upon me to help him. I feel that I should go mad if this were to last much longer. I am ready, mother, the boy said earnestly. I have been hoping for some time that you would say you would start soon, and though I have not, of course, the strength of a man, I think that that will be more than made up by the advantage I should have as a boy in looking for my father. And at any rate, from what you tell me, I should think that I am quite as strong as an average native of your country. Anyhow, mother, I am sure that it will be best for us to go now. It must have been awful for you waiting all this time, and though you have never said anything about it, I have noticed for a long time that you were looking ill, and was sure that you were worrying terribly. What would be the use of staying any longer? I should not be very much stronger in another year than I am now, and a year would seem an age to father. And so it was settled, and Mrs. Holland at once began to make preparations for their departure. She had already, without saying anything to Dick, given notice that she should give up the house. She had, during the six years, saved a sum of money amply sufficient for the expenses of the journey and outfit, and she had now only to order clothes for herself and Dick and to part with her furniture. Ben, on his return, had heard with grave apprehension that she was about to carry out her intention, but, as he saw that any remonstrance on his part would be worse than useless, he abstained from offering any and warmly entered into her plans. After an hour's talk he had proposed to Dick to go out for a stroll with him. "'I am glad to have a talk with you, Ben,' Dick said. "'Of course I have heard from Mother what you told her when you came home, but I shall be glad to hear it from you, so as to know exactly how it all was.' You know, she feels sure that father is still alive. I should like to know what your opinion really is about it. Of course, it will make no difference, as I should never say anything to her, but I should like to know whether you think there is any possibility of his actually being alive. To this Ben had replied, as already related, he was silent when Dick asserted that, desperate or not, he intended to carry out his mother's plan. I would not say, as I think it altogether desperate as far as you are concerned, he said thoughtfully, it, it, it don't seem to me as there's much chance of your ever getting news of your father, lad. 
and as to getting him out of prison, if you do come to hear of him, why, honest, I'd not give a quid of backy for your chance, but I, I don't say as I think that it's an altogether desperate job as far as you're concerned yourself. Talking their lingo as you do, it's just possible as you might be able to travel about in disguise without anyone finding you out, especially as the Rajah, your uncle, ought to be able to help you a bit, and put you in the way of things, and perhaps send some trusty chap along with you. Now, there's no doubt you're strong for your age, and being thin and nothing but muscle, you'd pass better as a native than if you'd been thick and chunky. My old woman tells me as you have a regular name as a fighter, and that you've given a lesson to many a bully in the neighbourhood. Altogether, there's a lot in your favour, and I don't see why you should not pull through all right. At any rate, even even should the worst come to the worst, and you do get news somehow that your poor father's gone down, I'm sure it'll be better for your mother than going on as she has done for in the last six years, just wearing herself out with anxiety. I'm sure it will, Ben. I can tell you that it's as much as I can do sometimes not to burst out crying when I see her sitting by the hour, with her eyes open, but not saying anything or moving as much as a finger, just thinking and thinking and thinking. I wish we were going out on your ship, Ben. I wish you was too, lad, but it'll be five or six weeks before we are off again. Anyhow, the ship you're going in, the Madras, is a fine craft, and the captain bears as high a character as anyone in the company's fleet. Well, lad, I hope it'll all turn out well. If I could have talked the lingo like a native, I would have been glad to have gone with you and taken my chances. The captain saved my life in that wreck, and it would only have been right that I should risk mine for him if there was but a shadow of a chance of its being of use, but I know that, in a job of this sort, I could be of no good whatsomever, and should be getting you into trouble before we'd gone a mile together. I'm sure that you would help if you could, Ben, but of course you could be of no use. And when do you think of being home again, lad? Well, there's no saying, Ben, it may be years, but however long it takes, I shan't give it up until I find out for certain what has become of my father. And ain't there a chance of hearing how you're getting on, Dick? I, I shall think of you and your mother often and often when I'm on deck keeping my watch at night, and it'll seem hard that I mayn't be able to hear for years as to what you're doing. The only thing that I can do, Ben, will be to write if I get a chance of sending a messenger or for my mother to write to you to the office. That's it. You send a letter to Ben Burkett, boatswain of the Madeira, Kara East India Company, Leadenhall Street, and I shall get it sooner or later. Of course, I shall not expect a long yarn, but just two or three words to tell me how you're getting on, and whether you've got any news of your father. And if you come back to England, leave your address at the company's office for me, for it ain't an easy matter to find anyone out in London unless you've got the bearings right. Ten days later, Mrs. Holland and Dick embarked on the Madras. Dick had been warned by his mother to say nothing to anyone on board as to the object of their voyage. I shall mention, she said, that I am going out to make some inquiries respecting the truth of a report that has reached me, that some of those on board the Hoogli, of which my husband was captain, survived the wreck, and were taken up the country. That will be quite sufficient. Say nothing about my having been born in India, or that my father was a native Rajah. Some of these officials, and still more their wives, are very prejudiced, and consider themselves to be quite different beings to the natives of the country. At least I found it so on my voyage to England. At any rate, we don't want our affairs talked about. It will be quite sufficient for people to know that we are, as I said, going out to make some inquiries about the truth of this rumour. All right, mother. At any rate, the captain has told you that he will look after you and make things comfortable for you, so we need not care about anything else. We certainly need not care, Dick, but 
It's much more agreeable to get on nicely with everyone. I was very pleased when Captain Barstow called yesterday and said that, having heard at the office that the Mrs. Holland on the passenger list was the widow of his old shipmate, John Holland, he'd come round to see if there was anything that he could do for her, and he promised to do all in his power to make us comfortable. Of course I told him that I did not regard myself as Captain Holland's widow, that all we knew was that he had got safely ashore and had been taken up to Mysore, and as I had a strong conviction he was still alive, I was going out to endeavour to ascertain from native sources whether he was still living. "'Well, ma'am, I hope that you'll succeed,' he said. "'All this is new to me. I thought he was drowned when the Hoogley went ashore. Anyway, Mrs. Holland, I honour you for making this journey, just as on the off chance of hearing something of your husband. And you may be sure I will do all I can to make the voyage a pleasant one for you. So, you see, we shall start out favourably, Dick, for the captain can do a great deal toward adding to the comfort of a passenger. When it is known by the purser and steward that a lady is under the special care of the captain, it ensures her a larger share of civility and special attentions that she might otherwise obtain. As soon as they went on board, indeed, the captain came up to them. "'Good morning, Mrs. Holland,' he said. "'You have done quite right to come on board early. It gives you a chance of being attended to before the stewards are being called for by twenty people at once.' He beckoned to a midshipman. "'Mr. Hart, please tell the purser I wish to speak to him. So this is your son, Mrs. Holland, a fine, straight-looking young fellow. Are you going to put him in the service? You have a strong claim, you know, which I am sure the board would acknowledge. Do you know, Captain, it's a matter that I have hardly thought of. In fact, I have for years been so determined to go out and try and obtain some news of my husband, as soon as Dick was old enough to journey about as my protector, that I have not thought, as I ought to have done, what profession he should follow. However, he's only fifteen yet, and there'll be time enough when he gets back. If he is to go into the service, the sooner the better, ma'am. One can hardly begin too young. However, I don't say there are not plenty of good sailors afloat who did not enter until a couple of years older than he is. There's no strict rule as to age. Only fifteen, is he? I should have taken him for at least a year older. However, if you like, Mrs. Holland, I'll put him in the way of learning a good deal during the voyage. He might as well be doing that as loafing about the deck all day. Much better, Captain. I'm very much obliged to you, and I'm sure that he will be, too. I should like it immensely, Captain, Dick exclaimed. At this moment the purser came up. Mr. Stevenson, the captain said, this is Mrs. Holland. She's the wife of an old friend, John Holland. We were midshipmen together on board the Ganges. He commanded the Hoogley, which was lost, as you know, five or six years ago, somewhere near Calicut. There were two or three survivors, and he was one of them, and it seems that he was taken up the country. So Mrs. Holland is going out to endeavour to ascertain whether he may not be still alive, though perhaps detained by one of those native princes. Please do everything you can to make her comfortable, and tell the head steward that it's my particular wish she shall be well attended to. Uh, who is she berthed with? The purser took the passenger list from his pocket. She is with Mrs. Colonel Williamson and the wife of Commissioner Larkins. The captain gave a grunt of dissatisfaction. The purser went on. There is a small cabin vacant, Captain. Two ladies who were to have it, a mother and a daughter, have I here this morning been unexpectedly detained, owing to the sudden illness of one of them. Their heavy baggage is all in the hold and must go on, and they will follow in the next ship. Shall I put Mrs. Holland in there? Certainly. This is most fortunate. I don't think that you would have been comfortable with the other two, Mrs. Holland. I don't know the Colonel's wife, but Mrs. Larkins has travelled with us before, and I had quite enough of her on that voyage. Oh, thank you so much, Captain. It will indeed be a comfort to have a cabin to myself.' 
Dick found that he was berthed with two young cadets whose names he learned from the cards fastened over the bunks were Latham and Fellows. Half an hour after the arrival of the Hollands on board, the passengers began to pour in rapidly, and the deck of the Madras was soon crowded with them, their friends, and their luggage. Below all was bustle and confusion. Men shouted angrily to stewards, women laden with parcels blocked the gangway, and appealed helplessly to everyone for information and aid. Sailors carried down trunks and portmanteaus, and Mrs. Holland, when she emerged from her cabin, having stowed away her belongings and made things tidy, congratulated herself on having been the first on board, and so had not only avoided all this confusion, but obtained a separate cabin, which she might not otherwise have been able to do so, as the captain would have been too busy to devote any special attention to her. After handing her over to the care of the purser, Captain Barstow had spoken to the second officer who happened to be passing. "'Mr. Rawlinson,' he said, "'this is the son of my old friend, Captain Holland. He's going out with his mother. I wish you'd keep your eye upon him, and let him join the midshipmen in their studies with you in the morning. Possibly he may enter the service, and it will be a great advantage to him to have got up navigation a bit before he does so. At any rate, it will occupy his mind and keep him out of mischief.' A lad of his age would be like a fish out of water among the passengers on the quarter-deck. "'Aye, aye, sir. I'll do what I can for him,' and he hurried away. Dick saw that for the present there was nothing to be done but to look on, and it was not until the next morning, when the Madras was making her way south outside the Goodwins, that the second officer spoke to him. "'Ah, oh, there you are, lad. I've been too busy to think of you, and it'll be another day or two before we settle down to regular work. However, I'll introduce you to one or two of the midshipmen, and they'll make you free of the ship.' Dick was indeed already beginning to feel at home. The long table, full from end to end, had presented such a contrast to his quiet dinner with his mother that, as he sat down beside her and looked round, he thought he should never get to speak to anyone throughout the voyage. However, he had scarcely settled himself when a gentleman in a naval uniform next to him made the remark, "'Well, youngster, what do you think of all this? I suppose it's all new to you?' "'It, it is, sir. It seems very strange at first, but I suppose I shall get accustomed to it. "'Oh, yes, you'll find it pleasant enough by and by. "'I am the ship's doctor. "'The purser has been telling me about you and your mother. "'I made one voyage with your father. "'It was my first, and a kinder captain I never sailed with. "'I heard from the purser that there seems to be a chance of his being still alive, "'and that your mother's going out to try and find out something about him. "'I hope most sincerely that she may succeed in doing so. "'But he's been missing a long time now. "'Still, that's no reason why she should not find him.' There have been instances where men have been kept for years by some of these rascally natives. Why, goodness only knows, except, I, I suppose, because they fear and hate us, and think that some time or another an English prisoner may be useful to them. Your mother looks far from strong, he went on, as he glanced across Dick to Mrs. Holland, who was talking to a lady on the other side of her. Has she been ill? No, sir, I have never known her ill yet. She has been worrying herself a great deal. She's waited so long because she did not like to go out until she could take me with her. She has no friends in England with whom she could leave me. She looks a good deal better now than she did a month ago, though. I think directly she settled to come out and had something to do, she became better. That's quite natural, the doctor said. There's nothing so trying as inactivity. I have no doubt that the sea air will quite set her up again. It performs almost miracles on the homeward-bound passengers. They come on board looking pale and listless and washed out. At the end of a month at sea they are different creatures altogether. The purser had taken pains to seat Mrs. Holland at table next to a person who would be a pleasant companion for her, 
and the lady she was now talking to was the wife of a chaplain in the army. She had a year before returned from India in the Madras, and he knew her to be a kind and pleasant person. Dick did not care for his cabin-mates. There were young fellows of about eighteen years of age. One was a nephew of a director of the company, the others the son of a high Indian official. They paid but little attention to him, generally ignoring him altogether, and conversing about things and people in India in the tone of men to whom such matters were quite familiar. In three or four days Dick became on good terms with the six midshipmen the Madras carried. Two of them were younger than himself, two somewhat older, while the others were nearly out of their time, and hoped that this would be their last trip in the midshipmen's berth. The four younger lads studied two hours every morning under the second officer's instruction, and Dick took his place at the table regularly with them. Mathematics had been the only subject in which he had at all distinguished himself at school, and he found himself able to give satisfaction to Mr. Rawlinson in his studies of navigation. After this work was over they had an hour's practical instruction by the boatswain's mate in knotting and splicing ropes and in other similar matters. In a fortnight he learned the names and uses of what had at first seemed to him the innumerable ropes, and long before that had accompanied one of the midshipmen aloft. On the first occasion that he did so two of the topmen followed him, with the intention of carrying out the usual custom of lashing him to the ratlines, until he paid his footing. Seeing them coming up, the midshipman laughed and told Dick what was in store for him. The boy had been as awkward as most beginners in climbing the shrouds, the looseness and give of the ratlines puzzling him, but he had for years practiced climbing ropes in the gymnasium at Shadwell, and was confident in his power to do anything in that way. The consequence was that, as soon as the sailors gained to the top, where he and the midshipman were standing, Dick seized one of the halyards and, with a merry laugh, came down hand over hand. A minute later he stood on the deck. "'Well done, youngster,' said the boatswain's mate, who happened to be standing by as Dick's feet touched the deck. "'This might be the first time you've been on board a ship, but it's easy to see that it isn't the first, by a long way, that you've had been on a rope. Could you go up again?' "'Yes, I should think so,' Dick said. "'I have never climbed so high as that, because I have never had the chance, but it ought to be easy enough.' The man laughed. "'There are not many sailors who can do it,' he said. "'Well, let's see how high you'll go.' As Dick was accustomed to go up a rope thirty feet high, hand over hand, without using his legs, he was confident that with their assistance he could get up to the main top, lofty as it was, and he at once threw off his jacket and started. He found the task harder than he had anticipated, but he did it without a pause. He was glad, however, when the two sailors above grasped him by the arms and placed him beside them on the main top. "'Well, sir,' one said admiringly, "'we thought you was a jolly newcomb by the way you went up the ratlines, but—' You come up the rope like a monkey. I'll see you free up here, and if you weren't, it would not make much odds to you, for it would take half the ship's company to capture you. I don't want to get off paying my footing, Dick said, pulling five shillings from his pocket and handing them to the sailors, for his mother had told him that it was the custom, on first going aloft, to make a present to them, and had given him the money for the purpose. I can climb, but I don't know anything about ropes, and I shall be very much obliged if you'll teach me all you can. End of chapter 1 Recording by Mike Harris